So we're going to jump back into a time machine for a moment. And I'm going to show you a picture of something. Let's see if you rem- know what this is. <laughs> How many of you know what that is? How many of you are completely clueless? Yeah. <laughs> How many of you still have a working one? Wow, good for you. And is it still attached? Like, wow, okay, awesome. So I remember growing up, uh, going to my grandparents. Uh, we went once a month or so for dinner and hung out with them. And um, my grandparents had a rotary phone. And when we moved my grandmother out of her house when I was maybe 12 or 13 years old, so this is 1991, 1992, somewhere around there, she had a rotary phone. We had to return it because she leased it from the phone company, like from when they first had it. Can you imagine how much she paid for that phone every month? Um, So... Uh, If you want some entertainment, go to YouTube, not right now, go to YouTube and YouTube um, kids trying to figure out how to use one of these. It's truly hysterical. Uh, So, and if you're at a thrift store and you pick one up for maybe a grandchild or for your own child, uh, that'll be a lot of fun as well. Um, You remember one of these, right? Yeah, so that was the the next step of technology. You didn't have to click, 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 click. You got to push the button. Um, We had one of these growing up. Not one just like this, but we had all sorts of push dial phones. In fact, there's still some here in the church building. Um, When we were in high school, I was probably a freshman or a sophomore. We we graduated to a newfangled technology, one of these. You you guys remember having one of these? Um, A caller ID box. What was great about a caller ID box is that you could see who was calling you and you could screen your calls like we do today, right? When your phone goes off, if they're not in your contacts, you're likely not answering it. Or if you see my name. Um. I know you never do that. In fact, we don't call people anymore. We text people. If you're calling, you're like, please, just text me. But we do have an opportunity or we have um, the means to reject phone calls today, even put calls on a do not call list. They don't work, but we do it anyways. This morning, we are going to talk about a call, a different kind of call, and it's one that you never want to reject. It's one that comes from God. The scripture that is in front of us today in our study in Romans speaks of the effective, powerful call of God that produces salvation in the believer's life. Now, as we've been walking our our way through Romans especially in Romans 9, we've been tackling some difficult questions and, more importantly, some difficult doctrines. Uh, The overarching question in Romans 9 is, has God's word failed? Has it failed because it seems like the people that were chosen by God in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, have largely rejected the promises that were given. 
I mean, there were covenants and all of these things that were, were pushing uh, the, God's people to consider the greatness of God through the gift of the Messiah that would restore them and restore their nation to all the blessings and promises that he had given. And in the day of Paul, it seemed like it was only the far minority of Jewish people that actually understood that Jesus was the Savior. And so if the minority is the one that is believing, and I mean a small fraction and you have a large community of people that belong to the promises of the Old Testament, and the promises of the Messiah applied to them, then why are they in unbelief? Has God's word failed? And so Paul was dealing with answering those questions through bringing up uh, several questions in this chapter to affirm that God's word has not failed. In fact, Paul declared that not all Israel is true Israel. There's a national Israel. There's a bloodline. There's a, hey, my dad and my granddad and my, go all the way back through the lineage. We all belong to these tribes that form this nation. But what Paul was teaching was that God was purposefully, sovereignly, providentially calling true Israel. And there were some examples, Jacob over Esau. We saw even in the example of Pharaoh that God is sovereignly working his plan to call a people, a true people, that would believe in the Messiah. Our passage this morning is continuing to challenge us to consider the greatness of the plan of God. Because as Paul unfolds the next, you know, when I mean unfold, right, you unfold it and you see like the next part of it, the next understanding of it, the next shade of of what God is doing as as Paul is defending the sovereignty of God and, and his family. What he reveals this morning would have blown the sandals off of the first century Jew. It really would. It would have been a confounding thought. It would be like, Oh, my word. Now, they would have understood this in a functional way, but theologically, for them to be able to put together in their mind and their heart what the Scriptures were teaching and what that meant and how it now applies to this family of God, it would have been one of those shocking kind of revelations. For some of the Jewish community, and we're not talking about the Jewish community that now belong to the church, but we're talking about to the the, the Jewish community that was still awaiting for Messiah. It wasn't just a shocking revelation. It was a troubling thought that God was doing something new and that God's family would be comprised of Jew and Gentile. But that's God's plan. And so I want to share before we jump into the text in Romans nine twenty four uh, through twenty nine, um, I just want to share a, a quick summary of what's going on, or what would have been going on in the minds of the people that have read this letter. Um, so we know that there was a day that that came shortly after Jesus ascended to heaven, when his disciples were gathered. And they were called that when the Holy Spirit would visit upon them, that then they were going to go out with great power to share to the world, beginning in Jerusalem, that Jesus is the Messiah. 
And when that day came, we call it the day of Pentecost. Not that it was a new day on the the church calendar. The day of Pentecost was celebrated by Jewish people. That as the Jews were gathered in Jerusalem, Peter received power from the Holy Spirit and preached a sermon that is written for us in Acts chapter 2. And he began to explain that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises that were in the Old Testament. And we see as a result of that sermon, thousands of people trusted in Jesus as Savior. Like it, 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 was a, it was an awakening. It was revival. All the people who were there that day, largely Jewish, because they were in Jerusalem, gathered for the feasts, gathered for the celebrations, those Jewish people no longer were Jewish only. They belong to a new community, the community called the church. All people who have been called, chosen, elected by God, both Gentile and Jew, because then that message went from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the outer parts of the world. That's what the book of Acts teaches us. That as the gospel went forth and people responded by faith, all of those people that responded by faith to the message of Jesus now belong to a new community called the church. The church, as with other truths in Scripture in the first century, was a mystery to those that were following God, believing in God, listening to God, waiting for God. In the Old Testament, you don't hear anything about the church. There, there, there are no explicit under, uh, descriptions of what it means to belong to this community. It was all about the nation of Israel. Now, in the Old Testament, when God was giving these promises, He would often include promises that included Gentiles, but they would be grafted into the Jewish nation. They would have to go through circumcision. They would have to identify with the covenant community of Israel to be a part of Israel. But then they were still in this community, not having the access that the Jewish people themselves would have and enjoy in the temple and in the sacrifices and in all those things. But now because of Jesus, everyone that responds to him by faith has access in all of the promises and all of the blessings that were to come. And so now we're in a new time. But this confounded the people that were searching the Old Testament trying to figure out what it means to be a part of God's family. And some even said, well, this is so new that God never gave any promises for it. And so they were skeptical that maybe this group of disciples created something new. But as we look at the text and as we look at Romans 9 and 10 and 11 and we see how God is fitting it all together, what we are beginning to understand is that yes, God is working specially through a group of people called the church, but he will return in the future nationally to the special group of people that comprised Israel. There will come a future day where God will return specifically to the nation of Israel. He will work through the promises that he made them. And he will return them 
to his favor. That remnant, and what I mean by remnant, that portion of people that is living in that day when they see the return of Jesus will acknowledge that he is Lord and Messiah and they will enter into the kingdom of Jesus for a thousand years a part of the nation of Israel. The church will not be there at that time when God is bringing back Israel to the forefront. It happens during the tribulation that is written in Daniel, Matthew, Revelation, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, Jude. I mean, gosh, there's prophetic truths all throughout Scripture of what God is doing and bringing these people back. The church is not going to be there. They're going to be in heaven. And as we are in heaven, God is working through this people again and refining this people to prepare them to receive the king that is going to return. And so that's what's happening. But right here in Romans 9, as we see this new layer, this unfolding of God's plan, that God hasn't forgotten his people Israel, and yet as God has not forgotten this people Israel, he has also opened the door and given access to a new people, Gentiles, What does this all mean for us? What is God doing? And so that brings us to Romans chapter 9, verse 24. A wonderful phrase is written for us in verse 24. You may want to underline it, highlight it, and somehow remind yourself of it. And it's this, even us. That's the phrase. Even us. Listen to what Paul says. Even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. Now, it's hard to start a series of, or a sermon, uh, beginning of verse 24, because it's half the sentence, right? Like, you don't read a book and read just half the sentence, or, you know, you miss the the first part and start, okay, I'm going to read the last half, and then I'll figure out what the author's trying to say. So let's figure out what the even us is saying. Look at verse 23, and we looked at this last week as we concluded uh, what God is doing in preparing vessels. Uh, There are vessels of honor, there are vessels uh, for dishonor. And in verse 23, we read, and he did so, this is God He did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. And so this this preparation, this, this sovereign call of God to appoint vessels of honor that would be as identified in verse 23 as vessels of mercy. They would be the vessels that God's mercy is poured out on. They are poured out on or into Why? Because they are prepared for God's glory. And that's a reference to what God is doing in his sovereign choice. But Paul doesn't say that it exists for Israel alone. Verse 24, even us. That's you and me. That's all of us who are in the faith that God has sovereignly called And that he's preparing us for glory, future glory. We call it our glorification. 
when we will be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. And we, and we call it the, the period of time when we will see God for who he is because sin is eradicated. And we are complete in the faith. And we will enjoy him like we've never enjoyed him before. I've said this before. Even our best day in church is just a shadow of what is to come. And boy, there are good days here. But when we see God for who he is, it's going to blow the sandals off our feet. It's going to be that kind of uh, amazing experience. So even us, God has divinely appointed a people who once did not belong to his promises to belong to his promises. I want to be careful, and I, that's why I went into the great lengths to explain what's going on in the church and what's going on in Israel, that we don't read into this and say that the church now has replaced Israel. God's just kind of set them nationally on the shelf. And he's going to return to them because the community he's building right now is his people called the church. It's the even us of verse 24 that connects us with verse 23, that we are vessels of mercy. It's the even us that Paul says he also called not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. Now, the Abrahamic covenant, if you go way back before the law, way back before all of the the, the commands that, that guided the nation of Israel. If you go back to the first conversation that God would have with a man where he says, I'm going to make a promise to you and this is what I'm going to do through you, you see that there was echoes of what is happening today and what he said. And what I mean by that is God made a covenant, a pact, a promise that he was going to keep with Abraham that through his descendants, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Well, by the way, that's us, the Gentiles. The Gentiles have always been a part of God's plan, but what we saw was through the the maneuvering of that covenant and the way that God was working through Abraham and his descendants to form a nation of people, that the Jewish people had come to the place in the time of Paul that all of God's promises were all about them and them alone. And that if you were going to belong to anything from God, you were going to have to join them to to experience that. We're going to see that God is unfolding God's sovereign plan here to show us that it's always been God's intention to include the church, the Gentiles, and what he's doing. But it's been a scandalous thought to be a Jewish person to consider that now the Gentiles are a part of this. Now, Paul reveals that through Christ, there is a new people of God. He is called even us. Now, this is the same calling that we've been talking about all throughout Romans 9 as we've considered the doctrine of divine election. God does not change the way that he calls, even though he is calling a new people. He is still God. He is still sovereign. He is still working his plan. And as we have talked about, and we talked about with the example of Jacob and Esau, and it was reaffirmed again for us in in the passage that we looked about at last week about the potter and the clay, that God does not choose based on how good we are. 
And he doesn't choose based on our desire. It is by God's will. It's his heart. And it's based solely upon his grace and mercy. But there's something that I want you to see in the text here as we move forward. And it serves as a reminder as we consider such a great call that God sovereignly gives. And it is this. Election does not save anyone. Now, why do I say that? Because for the last month or so, we've been in Romans 9 talking about God's sovereign choice, God's sovereign choice, God's sovereign choice. And it it may confuse you and think, well, hey, if God's sovereignly choosing, well, then I don't have to do anything. But election doesn't save anyone. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not election. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news about what Jesus has done is that he went to a cross and paid for the sins and died and was buried and rose again on the third day to defeat sin and death so that we who place our trust in him will find forgiveness of sin. And I want to bring that up because I don't want you to leave here over the last few weeks of hearing these messages thinking, okay, well, election is, is a sure doctrine, and, and it certainly is. That it must be election, God's call that saves us. But it doesn't. I mean, with election, we, we hear about God's sovereign call, that he chooses not based on, upon the will or attitude of man. It's by his divine choice. It may seem that we do nothing and God does everything so that we can be saved. And, and, and sometimes what that means is that we, we can't say no to God and we go kicking and screaming into the kingdom. But that's not the biblical doctrine of election. Election, as we've been discussing in Romans chapter 8, as it was introduced at the end of chapter 8, and now in chapter 9 more fully, is the work of salvation from God's perspective. We're hearing what God is doing from his perspective. What's going on in his mind and heart in heaven. We know that Romans chapter 3 teaches us that there is none who seek God, no, not one. There's nothing good in us. So Paul masterfully reveals what occurs from God's side to bring any dead sinner to his family. And I so appreciated that song that we sang right before I came up about being a part of God's family. So this is what's going on to bring a person into God's family. It begins with his call. But that's not all of it. If we flip forward to Romans 10, the same guy that wrote these words in Romans 9 that we're going to get to eventually in Romans 10, we see our side of salvation. It's man's responsibility. Romans 9, God's side, and what he does in his call. Romans 10, our side. What do we do? We have to believe. The gospel is preached. We have to believe. Some theologians... When we, when we talk about what's going on in Romans chapter 9, speak of this call that we're referring to as the effectual call of God. Some theologians refer to it as irresistible grace. I don't like that term. Irresistible grace. 
I, I tend to like the idea that what, what Paul is teaching is the effectual call of God. What I mean about not liking irresistible grace is that it conveys the idea that we've been kind of like abducted by aliens. You know, grace comes upon us and we're like, I don't want it. No, you're going to get it. That, that's not the doctrine of grace. That's not the gospel. That's not how we find salvation. I believe this effectual call is a divine call by God which results in effective change in the person's life. That a dead sinner is made alive to the things of God. God speaks. When God speaks, creation responds. When God said, let there be light, light didn't say, nah, not today. It doesn't work that way. When the Creator speaks, His call cannot be refused. He's the Creator. He is sovereign. But there's also another call that we see in in Romans chapter 10 that we'll get to in a few weeks that results in salvation, and that is what is referred to as the general call or the external call that comes from God. This is what I refer to as the general preaching of the gospel. Now, these calls go together. Every person who has been effectively called by God before the foundations of the world, as Ephesians chapter 1 teaches us, must find faith by believing in the message of the cross that is taught through the general call of the preaching of the gospel. That is why election doesn't save anyone. No one's going to get to heaven and say, who did you believe in? I didn't believe in anyone. I was elected. The doctrine of election teaches us from God's sovereign perspective, he chose. And from our perspective, we heard and responded by faith. Listen. Not all people that hear the general call will be saved. I've preached the gospel hundreds of times in different ways and circumstances. And not every person that has heard the general call for salvation responded by faith. But every person who is effectually called by God is saved Because they heard the gospel and God chose them and God predestined them to be conformed to his image. That's what we looked at in Romans chapter 8. Charles Spurgeon, the great evangelist of the 19th century, wrote this about his own conversion. It was a snowy morning and he couldn't get to his regular church. So he ended up at a primitive Methodist chapel. It was the last place that he thought he would walk into that Sunday morning. So he woke up in the morning, made his way into the church, and when he went into the church, the regular preacher of the church wasn't there. And this is what he says from his own testimony. And I want to read to you his own words because I don't want you to think that I made this up. 
Uh, He says, the minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker. (laughs) It it gets better, okay? Um, uh, A shoemaker, a tailor, or something of that sort went up into the pulpit to preach. Now, it is well that preachers be instructed, but this man was really stupid. Now, we don't teach our children to talk that way. But Spurgeon goes on, and this is how he went on to describe this man that led him to Christ. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimmer of hope for me in the text. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. That comes from Isaiah. And Spurgeon was saved. The external call was rather shabby. But the internal call was sovereign and effective. Spurgeon, later on in life, began his evangelistic ministry. And he went into a big hall that he was going to be doing some revival meetings in. No one else was in there. He was there to test the acoustics. He thought he was totally alone. And so he's standing in this agricultural hall. Remember, there's no uh, microphones. There's no speaker systems. He's going into this cavern of a hall. And he's testing the acoustics. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And way up in the rafters... Some worker was up there doing some work. He thought he was totally alone. He thought he heard the voice of God. And the man was saved. He was converted. In the external call of the acoustic testing came the internal call of the gospel that was put on his heart by God. And it created life where there wasn't life before. That's a true story. It's crazy. Now, when you think about God's sovereign call and God's general call, is it all clear to you? Gosh, I hope so. The reality is that God's call includes both Jew and Gentile. To flesh that out, Paul takes us back to the Old Testament to show us that there, there has always been a harmony with what God is doing today in the church. Look at verses 25 and 26. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Hosea is a wonderful prophet. It's a wonderful book. It's a challenging book. Let me give you a a quick summary of Hosea. He was a prophet of the kingdom of Israel, the, the ten tribes of the north, during a time when the kingdom of God, the nation of Israel, was split in two. Within 30 years of Hosea's prophet ministry, Israel would be consumed by the Assyrian nation. But at this time, they were kind of in a place of general, everything's fine. Everything was fine on the outside. There was general 
uh, prosperity, there was general peace, but internally and spiritually they were dead. And God called this people, or this person, Hosea, to come and preach a message that they must return to the Lord. You know how God told Hosea to preach? He gave him a picture. He says, I want you to go buy a woman off the prostitution market. And I want you to marry her. He didn't want the wife, her name is Gomer, to be just a possession. He wanted Hosea to bring this woman back that was selling herself as a slave to be a part of his family. And he did so, this prophet. And then she went back. She went back to her old lifestyle. And God said, I want you to go back and buy her back again. And Hosea's marriage is not figurative, it's real, but it was a picture of Israel's harlotry with God. They keep going back to the other things. Well, Gomer's lifestyle produced three children. They were not Hosea's children. They were the children that were born as a result of her activity as a prostitute. And here, in verse 25, two of those children are mentioned. We get their Jewish names in Hosea 1. But then in these quotes, we see what God is doing. I will call those who were not my people. That was one of the names of the children. Not my people. I will call those who were not my people, my people. And I will call those, the second name, not beloved, beloved. Like those children were named, not my people, not beloved. And God was showing a picture of what he's doing. And here's what we see under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul was saying that when Hosea was called to do that, it wasn't just for Israel alone, but God is working to bring a people that weren't his people, a people that were unloved, now are loved, to be a part of his family. That's us, the Gentiles, the Gentile age in the New Testament. Paul goes on in verse 27 through 29. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. So like all of these truths Paul is building upon are coming from the Old Testament. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute His word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of the Sabbath had left us to a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. Paul speaks of Isaiah's prophecy that God has always promised to save a remnant of Israel. It has always been God's plan. As he's wrapping up his thoughts of what's going on with Israel, Paul says, well, the word of God has always said it's never been nationally Israel. God has always promised to save a remnant, a group of people, even when it seems like the nation has largely rejected. Even though they outnumber the sands of the sea. It's not just a nationality thing, but a faith opportunity. That the righteous are reckoned like Abraham. And all throughout the Old Testament, Habakkuk quotes this 
as Paul then quotes in the New Testament, the righteous are righteous by faith. So Paul quotes from Isaiah 10 and Isaiah 1 as God is promising to save spiritual Israel as they place their trust in Him. And God has to promise this. Why? Because Isaiah foretold that unless God were to sovereignly act, everyone would perish like they did in Sodom and Gomorrah. If God does not intervene, if God does not work to save, everyone is destroyed in judgment. As fire comes from the sky, it is only by the grace of God as He calls out a remnant that any will escape the quick judgment that is visiting the earth due to sin. So what does that mean for us? Well, it means this, that God has removed every obstacle for us to know Him. He's done it. If you are in Jesus Christ, you can know for certain that God has removed every barrier, everything for you to enjoy Him. Paul said in Ephesians 2 that the gospel has broken down the dividing wall of Jew and Gentile. That in God's family today, there is no superior positions. There's no better seats in the front than in the back. Everyone enjoys the same grace, the same opportunity, the same privilege to enter into the presence of our holy God. We are called as family. We are the church. And it's solely by His grace. The second thing that it means is it also means that we live in the freedom of being a part of God's family, that we allow God to do His part in salvation through the effective call, and we always do our part through the general call. That's what the message of Romans 10 is. What this means for us today is that as we listen to the text of Scripture and ask God to work in our hearts to apply the the text of Scripture, to live it out, that sound theology will always lead to sound living. And sound living means that as we live for Jesus, we are unashamed of His love and we share it with the world. It is our responsibility. It is your responsibility as a child of God. It is not the church's responsibility in the sense of the professional function ministry of the church. It is every child of God's responsibility to share the gospel. Every one of you. And as you share the gospel, you're going to have Spurgeon-like moments where you're going to be the skinny shoemaker that is stupid, and you're not even going to know what you're saying next, but you teach the Word of God, and God uses it to transform the hearts of His people. And you're going to have the Spurgeon-like moments where you just share the Scriptures, and God takes the Scriptures, and He he regenerates the heart as the person responds to the Word of God. And there are going to be times that you're going to share the Gospel and walk away and think, man, that was a failure. And what you're going to find is people found life in Jesus. That is an amazing, wonderful, captivating thought. But you have to share. You have to do your part. 
So sound living results in faithful proclamation. And I pray as you go out and leave this place today, that you go in a way that understands God's mercy in your life. And that you go in a way that is captivated to help other people find that mercy. And as we do that, God is honored. He's blessed. We leave the results to Him. It's not what we do. It's what He does. And so I want to pray for you as we transition now uh, and just ask that God would move in our hearts to be faithful to His gospel. Let's pray.